Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, last week, we, uh, as you know, if you've been here, and uh, even if you weren't here last week, you know that we are going through a sermon series entitled Money, Money, Money. And uh, we are talking about the role of money when it comes to things uh, of the, the things of God, the things of the church, uh, how we walk with Christ, uh, and how we live as uh, Christians. And so last week, what we talked about was how money is used or how we should view money from a personal stance, uh, from, a, from a personal perspective. And so how it should be uh, looked at, how it should be considered from our personal lives. And, and the takeaway from that message, uh, if, if I could take one thing away from that message, was that we are stewards of our money, not owners of our money. All right, so God gives us money, allows us opportunity to earn money, but that money is not something that we own, that we are to use for our own selfish reasons, but that we're used for that we are to steward for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the expansion of God. Okay, and so that's the main purpose of money. The money, uh, money like everything else in our lives, is for the glory of God, and so if we neglect to use our personal finances for the glory of God, then we are living in sin. And so oftentimes we don't think of it that way. We think of, you know, sin, living in sin as some sort of moral failure like a promiscuity or uh, some sort of debauchery or something like that. But the truth is, is that the Bible speaks of, the, of money and misuse of money as much as he does those other types of sins that we like to um, talk about. Now, the reason why we talk about those sins more than money is because I believe, including myself, sometimes we don't treat our money as if we are stewards of it, but that we are actually owners of it, and we're going to do what we're going to do. And so hopefully we can kind of redirect our mindset on the use of money. Now, this morning... What I want to discuss is it's, it's an expansion on that idea of stewardship, but it's how money is our perspective of money when it comes to the corporate body of Christ. Okay, So last week was as individuals or individual families. This week it's looking at the corporate body of Christ. And this morning's message is entitled, Excelling in Acts of Grace. And that's taken straight from one of Paul's letters. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin by reading a passage that you all have heard me preach on multiple times. We've spoken about it in Bible study. In fact, I believe it was the very first passage that I preached from at this church uh, when I first started here. And the reason I'm using it again is because it can be used in so many different facets, and I think that it fits well with what we're talking about this morning. And of course, it's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And the author of Acts writes, And they devoted themselves, speaking of the, uh, the disciples, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number, to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let us pray. 
Father, I pray that in 2022, heading into 2023, that we, the church, would have similar, a similar perspective, a similar uh, love for generosity and for care of our brothers and sisters in Christ, for our neighbor and even our enemy, Lord, that we would look upon our wealth, whether that be in coin or dollar bill, or whether that be in items, things, that we would look at our wealth as not as items to use for our own glory, but items to steward for the glory of God. And I pray that our hearts would be cheerful and joyous as we look for ways of sharing the wealth that you have blessed us with. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I entitle that passage, Sharing is Caring. Sounds like it's straight out of a kindergarten lesson, right? And um, I have to say, it calls to mind a, uh, something that happened just recently uh, to, to my family and I. It was actually this Friday, and it fits so well. And I, it, we went to a baseball game, to a Reds game, and some of you all saw this on Facebook and everything. And I have to, now I love baseball. I love baseball. I am a new fan of the Reds. Now, I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And more than that, I am an Albert Pujols fan. And Albert Pujols is retiring this year. And the St. Louis Cardinals have called him back for one year because that was his first team. And so they've called him back for this final year, sort of as a go, uh, a, 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 a go away tour, <laughs> a retirement tour, if you will. Right. And so I, I was really hoping to be able to see him Friday. And so I spent extra money on getting tickets on the left field fence, left center field, on the fence, because I knew that Albert Pujols, even though he's left-handed, was going to hit a ball over that right field fence, because he's a right-handed hitter. I knew it was going to come to me, and so I spent extra money on those tickets, and Donna, since I'm using this as an illustration, I'll be turning in my receipt. And so, anyway, <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, okay, so talking about money in here, I'm looking for a reimbursement. Okay, so anyway, we're, we're sitting there, and it's 98 degrees, and we had just had Mexican food, and I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. And then the first home run was hit. Pew! Hit over the left field wall. We weren't quite over that, that way. And it wasn't by Albert Pujols, because to my chagrin, Albert wasn't playing on Friday. And so I was like, well, we're going to sit here, because I'm sure it'll be fun, and I like baseball anyway. And so here it comes, about the third or fourth inning. We're all sitting there in a row. We're watching intently the game, except for Lucas. He was on his phone, but that's another story. And here comes the ball. Joey Votto, an all-star, a left-handed all-star, hits a ball to opposite field, and here it comes. Here it comes. And I stand up because I'm excited. I was like, here comes a home run. I've never been this close. Jackson's still seated on, the, on his seat because he doesn't know what's going on. I don't know what Crystal's doing, but on the video we see that Lucas is doing this. He did not bring a glove with him. He would have caught that ball if it hadn't been a glove. Anyway, I don't know what ends up happening, but that ball bounces around and it rolls right in front of me. And I go up and I snag it. And I'm holding my hands up and I'm on the big screen. And like three minutes later, I get a message from one of our fellow pastors here in Franklin County who had been watching the game and he screenshots me on TV. I'm like, I'm famous. But immediately they say, give it to the kid. 
Well, my reaction is they want me to give it to Jackson. And of course I'm going to give the ball to Jackson. It wasn't Albert Pujols' ball. So I gave it to Jackson, and Jackson's red in the face. And it was a great thing and everything else. And so I sit back down, and I turn around, and it turns out that the little boy behind us had scooted up next to Lucas, and the ball came. He had a glove and everything. He came. Joey Votto was his favorite, favorite player. That ball came. It hit him right in the glove and bounced out and rolled along the fence. Now, I didn't see that, folks. I promise you I did not see it. I know in the video it looks like I'm stealing a ball from a nine-year-old, but I did not know that. <laughs> when we found that out, he was in tears. He was so upset. I mean, this was his chance, right? The guy behind me said, I've been to a game for 40 years. Never had a ball hit that close. He was also inebriated, so I don't know if he remembers very well. But anyway, I whispered to Jackson. I said, Jackson, I said, Joey's his favorite player. I said, what do you think? I said, should we give that ball to him? And without really thinking of it, Jackson handed me the ball. And he said, give that to that. He said, you give it to him. I said, no, you give it to him. He said, no, you give it to him. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. And so we handed that to little, that little boy. And that boy smiled, and it made his day. He had his favorite players, baseball. And, of course, everybody cheered, and they cheered mainly for me, but that's okay. And, and so, because they didn't know what was going on. Um, and so it was, it was a, but Jackson was, 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 wanted to give that ball to that boy. Now, again, if it had been Albert Pujols' ball, that boy would have been out of luck. And he'd still be crying, and Jackson might have been too, because that ball would have been on my desk. But it wasn't. It was Joey Votto. Now, I would like to say that the rest of the game went on. And there, was no, there, there was no repercussions from that. But that ball cost me $150 because then I had to take him up to the red store to buy him a jersey to make up for it. But anyway, it is what it is. The point of that whole thing is to say two things. Number one, that I snagged a home run ball. But the other is this, is that sometimes... Even those important things, those things that, we, uh, that matter to us, okay, sometimes we have to put those aside for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our brothers and sisters. All right, silly analogy, but I get to talk about baseball on Sunday mornings. That's great. And that's what was happening in the first century in the church, is that there were brothers and sisters in need. Now, it's not as if the rest of the church didn't need their money, Right? They needed it. But there were times when their brothers and sisters needed it more. And so the practice of that first century church was that they were gathering together in homes and then they pooled their possessions. And then as a brother or sister had need, they gave it to them because they looked at their finances not as their own, but as a gift from God that they were stewarding for the glory of God. That's what the first century church was doing. Now, here's one thing I want to say. The first century church is different, was different than today. So I am not suggesting that we should all pool our resources together and start handing it out, you know, kind of in, in that sort of... That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is that as the church, that we start looking at our monetary resources, our wealth, as something that God has given us 
to use for the thriving of the church. Now, that might be for our brothers and sisters who have fallen on hard times, who have less than us, who are struggling, so that we give as need. Or it might be that we are giving to a particular ministry, that we are giving to a particular cause for Christ that the church is active in. So the truth is, is that sharing really is caring. It really is. Now, you might say, well, the authors of the Bible were only talking about the rich folks, that the rich folks should give to the poor folks. Folks, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, I'm going to read a passage today that demonstrates that the most generous church that we find in the New Testament is likely, likely was the poorest church in the New Testament. We're going to see how Paul pulls that out and shares it with us. Now, before I begin, I want to say this, because we're getting ready to talk about some practical things that I want us to be aware of. For instance, tithing. But I do want to share one thing. I believe, and I, have, I make no bones about this, that God works primarily for His own glory through the church. Through the church. Now, why, do I, why am I saying that? There are many other organizations and groups that do great work. And I will even say faith-based, Christian groups, parachurch organizations, not churches, but parachurch organizations that do wonderful, wonderful work. We have given to them. Uh, we still give to them occasionally. But I believe primarily God is doing the majority of His work for His own glory through the local church. And I believe that's evident even in the first century. The Christians in first century were not creating parachurch organizations to go out and do ministry. What were they doing? They were planting churches and then going on mission. And they were going on mission to plant more churches. And when money was given, it was given for the betterment of the brothers and sisters in a local church and to plant more churches. That's what it was for. And like I said, there are many, many organizations today that are doing great work, and I'm not saying that we should not give to them. What I'm saying is, is that God does the majority of His God-glorifying work through the local church. And I think we see that through the New Testament. Now let's go ahead and begin. And the first thing I want to go is I want to go all the way back to the Old Testament. And I just want to give us a sort of a foundation. Because the word that most of you all might be asking and that many ask today is, is about is the word tithe. And the question really is this. Do we or should we still tithe? Should we still tithe as the New Testament church? Is tithing a biblical principle? Well, let's just go back to the Old Testament to a couple verses and look at tithing and its institution, okay? So the first passage that we're going to look at is 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verses 4-5. through 5. And Hezekiah here is now talking to the people of Israel and giving them mandates. And he says, And he commanded the people that, who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. 
So the first thing is this, is that the king is commanding the people to tithe to the temple and to the Levites. You see, the Levites were the priestly group of the Israelites, and they were commanded, they were designated to be the individuals to minister the word to the people. They were in charge of the temple. They were in charge of the, of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. They were in charge of all that. And so when the people were tithing, they were tithing to those people so that the temple could stay in order. Now, you might ask, what is a tithe? You know, because we like exact numbers, right? Well, let's keep on reading here. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain. Now, we talked about this last week. They did not give what was left over. They gave their first fruits. That's the first definition of a tithe. It's not left over. It comes off the top. When individuals ask me how we budget for tithe, or how, how do you budget you know, in your home, and, and how does tithe fit in there, it's, it's actually not that complicated. You take what you make, and your tithe comes off the top. If you want to do it the way they did it in the Old Testament, okay? In the Old Testament, it comes right off the top. It says, The first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. So that's another thing. They didn't say, well, I'm only going to tithe from this field. Every source of income that they got, the tithe was the first fruit off of everything. They, weren't, they didn't have this like little stash for their own sake over here, and they only gave the Lord this over here. And by the way, it was considered giving to the Lord. And in fact, Proverbs says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now that sounds like a prosperity verse, right? That's not what the author of Proverbs is aiming at. What he's aiming at is that the Lord will bless you in general if you honor the Lord. Honor the Lord and you will be blessed. That doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy. That doesn't mean that you're going to be rolling in the dough. Okay? What it means is that the Lord is going to bless you. And what my experience has been is that individuals who give generously and who are cheerful, joyful givers often don't find themselves in financial predicaments as much as individuals who spend hand over fist. The more generous you are, typically, the less financial issues that you have. I find that to be ironic in today's society where our society says, keep everything that you get. And so in the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers were commanded to give their first fruits. And that was part of the law. Now what's interesting is that that was even, even occurring before the law was given. So Abraham did it. Joseph, I believe, did it as well. They were giving the tithe which means 10%. So you might be saying right now, all right, 10% is what it is. Well, here's the truth, is that 10% was the bare minimum. Many Old Testament believers were actually giving closer to about 20%. Closer to about 20%. So that is the Old Testament practice. Now, what I find 
funny or ironic or maybe just it's just sad is how many churches and Christians today still follow that pattern in a legalistic manner. We have to tithe. We have to tithe. And so if someone says to me or asks me, as a Christian today, are we to tithe, are we commanded to tithe to the church? And my answer is, I'm sorry, Donna, no, we are not. The Bible does not command Christians today to tithe. Now, if you feel relieved right now, shame on you. (laughs) But I have to be honest. It does not command us to tithe. But I want you to put a bookmark there. Because if you were feeling relieved, you're not going to be here in a little bit. Okay? The tithing was part of an old covenant. It was the old covenant. And Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. So we as the church, we are under a different mandate now. We are under a different law. We are under the new covenant. We are under the law of grace, if you will. So what I want to do now is I want to look at New Testament practices. And I want to look at a few verses here. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5, as he's beginning the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, some individuals are reading that and they're saying, thank you, at this very moment. Now, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is telling them that I have come to fulfill the law. All right. Now, individuals now are thinking, yay, things are going to be different. It's going to be a little bit more lax now. But that's not what Jesus says. Under Christ's headship as our new high priest, there is a new mandate. So for instance, it's not murder only if you kill someone. You might be guilty of it even if you have anger in your heart. It's not adultery or lust if you only are, have infidelity in your marriage. It might be even if you have it in your heart or in your head. You see, there's a different category now. Because it's not just what we do, it's what our intentions are. And so Christ has fulfilled the law, including the tithe, which leads us to Matthew 23, 23 through 24, which is a favorite of many pastors. And so I need us to put like a full put our brakes on here as we read this. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and to the scribes. He says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness." So let's pause. So the Pharisees were very diligent on giving their tithe. But they were neglecting other things. Justice, mercy, love, those sorts of things. Now here's what's curious here. Jesus says, these you ought to have done, speaking of justice and mercy and faithfulness, 
these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, what Jesus is saying to these scribes is that you should have been merciful and just and faithful without neglecting the tithe. So the assumption there is Jesus is telling the scribes that the law is still in effect, okay? And so you should not disobey the, the, the tithing law, but you should also not disobey the just law. In a sense, you should be tithing. So what is Jesus saying here? What's going on here? Let me go back to chapter 5 real quick. When he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I want you to notice that this is early in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has not yet died on the cross. Jesus has not been raised from the dead yet. Therefore, the law has not been fulfilled yet. Jesus has come to fulfill the law, but at this time it has not yet been accomplished. Because remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the blood over the doorpost, if you will, and that is what is going to secure the new covenant, the blood of Christ, which has not yet been shed. And so at this moment, even in chapter 23, Jesus has not yet fulfilled the law, so they are still under the law. So what Jesus is saying here is not contradictory. He's telling them, you should be faithful Israelites. You should be faithful Jews. And he's saying that you have misconstrued the law for your own benefit. You take what you want and you leave what you don't. One of my colleagues uh, describes it as eating fish with bones in it. That you eat the fish and then you spit out the bones. That's what the Pharisees were doing here. right? They considered those other things of, of the law the bones of the fish that they didn't want. But the truth is that all of it is the meat of the law. And so Jesus here is instructing the Pharisees and the scribes that they should tithe biblically. But that is because that Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. So let's move now to Galatians 3.23. Paul writes this concerning the law. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So Paul's saying the law was guarding us. And we were imprisoned by the law, but the law had a purpose. But now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, in order that we might, or we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Not through the law, but through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Paul is now saying that that law that you were imprisoned to, it is now abolished. 
or it is now fulfilled, I should say, through Christ. It's now fulfilled. You are not in prison to it now. You are now following Christ. You have freedom in Christ, which means that there is no more tithe that we need to be worried about. We don't have to, we don't have to sit there and, and look at our bank account and have to worry about, you know, are, am I given the exact 10%? Because if I don't give the exact 10%, I'm going to be living in sin. That's gone now. That's gone now. We don't have to worry about that. And again, some of us might be relieved. There's a new standard, and that new standard is grace. But grace is not 10%. Grace is 100%. It's 100%. And what I mean by that is it's complete. It's total. Everything, not just 10%, everything you have now is for the kingdom of God. Everything. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians about cheerful giving. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You see, the church in Macedonia was an extremely impoverished church. Yet they also knew that their wealth was not their own. What little wealth they had was not their own. And so when they saw need, they gave it and they gave it out of poverty, but with joy. They sacrificed and it was a joy to do it. Let me tell you this. Lord, the Lord does not want you to give up your wealth for His kingdom begrudgingly. If you're going to give your wealth, but you're going to give it begrudgingly, you might as well keep it. Because it is not an act of worship at that point. It is an act of legalism. It is, a lack of, is an act of guilt. The Lord wants us to give with joy. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. What does that mean to me? It says that if anybody on the outside looked at their budget and saw what they gave, they would be astounded. In fact, they would probably say those churches were misappropriating money or that they were being unwise with their finances because they were giving too much away. They should have kept some for themselves, but that's not what the Lord led the church in Macedonia to do. The Lord led them to give beyond their means. Here's what's funny, though. They gave beyond their means, and the Lord, that church did not fall away. That church did not crumble because they gave more than some think they should. That church flourished. Because the Lord kept them. The Lord kept them going. 
For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Macedonia was saying, thank you for letting us be a part of this. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul is calling the churches to excel in the act of grace, of giving and giving generously. Because Paul recognizes, just as the church of Macedonia recognized, that what little they had was not theirs anyway. It was the Lord's and it was for the Lord's work. Furthermore, he continues down in verses 6 through 11. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think there's even a VBS song about that, about giving cheerfully. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. He is, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Catch that. If you sow Limit, in a limited fashion, you will reap in a limited fashion. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. But it is not for your own gain. That if you sow generously, you will reap generously for further sowing. So if the Lord has blessed you, if you've been generous to the Lord, and the Lord blesses you, it is not so that you can go and spend it on other frivolous things, it's so that you can spend it on more kingdom work. So some might say that a, that a millionaire is being greedy by asking for two million. And I'll say, why is he being greedy if he's using it for kingdom work? I say give him a billion dollars so he can use it for the kingdom. Because our money is not our own. Our money is not our own. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The Macedonians, when they gave, now we don't know this for sure, but I'm just picking this apart based upon the context. I'm sure that when they had a business meeting and they came together after giving beyond their means that the head of finance or the treasurer wasn't looking at the budget and being like, oh, I just don't know if we're going to make ends meet this week. They probably didn't even look at it. They were just rejoicing that God had given them the opportunity to be able to serve the saints in this way. 
not all the churches were able to go out and plant other churches, but they could support individuals who were going out and giving. And so giving is tied directly to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this, for his inexpressible gift. When you give for the sake of the kingdom, you are filling in part the Great Commission. So often when we think of fulfilling the Great Commission, we feel like we've got to go on mission, that we've got to go somewhere. Well, not all these churches could go somewhere, but they could give. They could give. And by giving, they were helping fulfill the Great Commission that the good news of Jesus Christ would go to the ends of the earth. Now, that does not let Christians off the hook about going. And that does not let the Christians off the hook about sharing. So you can't say, well, I don't want to share the gospel myself, but here's $10,000 for somebody who will. No, we are all called to share. And we are all called to go in some fashion. But we are also called to give. And so I want to conclude by just saying a couple practical things. And it's this. Is the tithe still commanded of Christians today? And here's my response to that. My response is obviously no. I've already said that it was no. And I want to reaffirm that. It's no. We are not called to tithe today. We are called to give sacrificially. So that might only be 1% of your income. It might be 2%. But it might be 15, 20, or 25%. We are called to give sacrificially. Why? Because that is the, that is the mandate of grace. Christ did not give 10% of himself. Christ gave 100% of himself. And he calls us to give 100% of ourselves in every way. And so we give, we give sacrificially, and we give with joy, and we give cheerfully. And so you can tell an individual's, in the same way that you can tell someone's commitment to prayer by looking at their the, their budgeted time schedule. Here's ten, here's 10 minutes over here at the end of the day for prayer. Here's an hour, four, four hours committed to Netflix reruns of Longmire. That was really personal, folks. I'm just going to tell you. All right? So you commit 10 minutes to prayer, four hours to Yellowstone reruns. All right? That tells you how committed you are to prayer, right? It's the same with our budget. It's the same with our budget. And so just practically speaking, all of us regularly need to reevaluate, are we giving sacrificially? But now I want to call, because now this is looking at the church, okay? 
You can also see where a church's goals are by looking at their budget. And there are many churches that spend 90% of their funds on infrastructure and maintenance and things like that and 10% on actual ministry. My goal is as a church that the majority of the funds that are given to this church will be used for direct ministry. And I don't mean paying somebody to do it. So some will say, well, it's going direct, you know, it's going to the pastor and he's doing the ministry for it. That's not what I mean. What I mean is money given to send people on mission or to pay for children's events, not activities, ministry events, okay? I've seen some senior adult ministry budgets that were tremendous. I mean, we're talking like $30,000, $40,000 or 30, 30 or 40% of the church's budget given to senior adults ministry, which is not a bad thing. Except for when you look at how those monies were used, they were used for going on vacations. They were going to Gatlinburg or Branson. And I just want to know how many individuals were being ministered to on that trip. I'm just going to tell you, when I am a senior adult, I do not want the church spending money for me to go to Branson. It is a God-forsaken place anyway, but that's another story. Okay? <laughs> I want, by God's grace, I want to be doing ministry until the day that I die. So let us look, and let us look critically at our personal finance and our church finances and say, what are we doing for, for kingdom expansion? What are we doing for kingdom expansion? What are we giving, and can we give more? What can we give up? Can we give up Starbucks? Can we give that up? You might say, well, I only get Starbucks once a week. Well, that's $50 a week or something like that. Okay, It's a lot of money, folks, okay? But let's say it's 5 bucks a week. That's 20 bucks a month. That's 20 bucks a month. 20 bucks a month adds up and can be used for the kingdom. I am ashamed to say how many streaming services... I pay for every month. There are streaming services that I pay for I don't even know that I'm paying for. Don't tell Crystal that. I know she's not listening to me right now. As soon as this church service is over, she's going to be asking me questions when we get home. I'm just going to say. so. But my, my point is, is that we use our money for so many different things that if we really looked at it, don't really do anything for the kingdom. They really don't. Now, I'm not knocking going on vacation and things like that. You know I'm not, and I said that last week. I'm not going to repeat it. If you want to hear that, that commendation, listen to last week. It's online, okay? I'm not doing that to you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for taking your family out to eat after church. All right? I'm not making you feel guilty for having a Netflix uh, subscription. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to, trying to get us to do is look critically at our individual and our corporate finances and saying, are we doing enough? Are we, are we really sacrificing? 
so that people will come to Christ? That's the question. Are we sacrificing so people will come to Christ? And are there things that, or are there things that we're spending money on that are really just for, they're, they're frivolous, right? And I will say this as my last word. We do not want to come to the end of our days and look at the whole of what we spend our time or our money on and consider those things as frivolous. Because what Christ gave to us was not frivolous. And what Christ spent His wealth on, His blood on, was not frivolous. It was your very soul. And we should be willing to do the same in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for this day. We ask your forgiveness for when we have failed you, Lord, when we have chosen defeat or selfishness over the Great Commission. Father, I pray that we would be committed to your glory so that people would know the surpassing love of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.